Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Melanin Margin, the weekly chat show where conversations about race are never off the table. We're your hosts, Quaviandre Williams. And Daquan Wilson. So let's get into this week's conversation. What's hot on the table this week? In an article written on Forbes magazine by Allison Durkee, we learned that SeaWorld-owned theme park Sesame Place was sued for $25 million on Wednesday for alleged race discrimination after a Black child was ignored by characters at the park, part of a broader controversy over the Philadelphia area's attractions, allegedly racist practices, sparked by a separate viral video showing a performer snubbing Black children. Parent Quentin Burns filed a lawsuit in federal court after his child and other Black kids were allegedly ignored by characters during a meet and greet on June 18th, alleging performers portraying the Sesame Street characters Elmo, Ernie, Telly Monster, and Abby Kadabi refused to engage with the Black guests, but readily engaged with white ones. The lawsuit filed against SeaWorld Parks and Entertainment, Sesame Place, and the performers in question is seeking class action status to represent all Black guests who face discrimination at Sesame Place at any point after July 27, 2018. The complaint alleges Sesame Place and SeaWorld committed pervasive and appalling race discrimination in violation of federal law and also accuses the theme park of breach of contract and negligence by not adequately training their performers and hiring them despite their alleged racial biases. Sesame Place has issued multiple apologies regarding the initial video that went viral and said in a statement about Burns's lawsuit that it would review the complaint and the park is, quote, committed to deliver an inclusive, equitable, and entertaining experience for all of our guests, end quote. So Andre, that begs the question, what are your thoughts on the, this lawsuit against Sesame Place? Um, I just want to say that I hope that the parents made sure those little kids knew that what happened during their experience had nothing to do with them. Um, it breaks my heart to hear this story because it just reinforces why it is so important for people to learn about race in this society so that we can start making moves to create a more equitable and fair world. I mean, Sesame Place has issued multiple statements trying to defend themselves, even going as far as to say that the masks um, make it difficult for the characters to see at lower levels, which has been debunked multiple times by right. actual performers who have worn these masks. But even still, Sesame Place is geared towards children, not adults. So even if this was the case, that would just be bad business, seeing as though kids are their target audience and they are at lower height levels. But what really gets me is that this supposed training that they have stated they are going to conduct with their staff is something that is being done after this event. This should have been a part of their training from the beginning. I mean. Why is it that every time something overtly racist happens, the people accused want to scream about how they will train their staff better, yet there is no mention of this training being the standard for all new employees? I mean, racism exists everywhere, and it 
does not just evaporate when people go to jobs or go to schools or go about their everyday lives. I mean, simply ignoring the fact that racist and racist institutions exist does not make racism go away. And if this was just one freak occurrence, then Sesame Place could have easily fixed the issue by firing the employee, reaching out to the family, apologizing and offering some form of compensation. But there have been several other videos of instances at Sesame Place where Black children were being ignored by characters, which is why this issue has escalated to a class action lawsuit. And allegedly, Sesame Place released a statement saying that they reached out to the mother of the video um, that started this whole conversation and, and said that they gave her free tickets or something to that effect as their form of an apology. Um, and the woman came forward and in the words of Dakota Johnson, she said, no, that is not the truth, Ellen. That never <laughs> happened. But again, this is alleged because I have not been able to find any corroborating articles for this, mm -hmm. since the class action lawsuit has dominated the news articles around Sesame Place. But in regards to my thoughts on the lawsuit, all I have to say is, baby, go off. Because at this point, just as Daquan and I have been saying on this podcast since we started it, the only time that rich white people care about discrimination is when them pockets start hurting. So when you put a hurting on them pockets, those ears start clearing up real fast. I mean, it's sad to say that we live, we can't live in a world where people don't take discrimination seriously without having to be threatened with losing money, but it is what it is. What I hope this lawsuit does is teach people in power that BIPOC and other marginalized people are not going to take your bullshit lying down. At the very least, I hope it scares them enough to start ensuring that their employees are trained properly upon being hired and to reinforce a zero tolerance policy for discrimination of any form. I mean, there's a scene um, in the movie Big Business that comes to mind when I think about the situation. At the end of the film, the main character saved the town of Jupiter Hollow from the shareholders tearing it down um, by appealing to the good, but not by, by not like appealing to the goodness of their heart or whatever. It was by appealing to their base desires as businessmen and women, you know, to save their own asses. If mm -hmm. enough of these big corporations keep losing money due to these types of discrimination lawsuits and the bad press that comes with it, maybe they will realize that to save their own ass, they need to put in the work to make sure that, that their BIPOC and marginalized employees and patrons are treated with dignity, respect, and the kindness they deserve. But Daquan, I'm I'm interested to hear what you think about this lawsuit. I mean, why do you think things like this keep happening? Because racism exists. <laughs> <Simply hurts. laughs> and because being diverse and equitable is not the trend anymore. We saw it happen after things like George Floyd and the BLM movements that everybody had all of these statements about how they're going to be more diverse and equitable and include more people and come up with all of these different ways that they'll participate in this movement. But we see that in actuality, they're not sticking to the plans or goals that they had when they started these DEIB task force and goalposts mm -hmm. and everything like that. And so it like you said, it frustrates me to no end that this could happen to a little child, a little child who just wants to go to the park and have a fun time 
and all of a sudden they see their favorite character just ignoring them while going to every single other child and then they start to think well why why weren't they nice to me what's different mm -hmm. about me than all of these other people why won't my favorite character play with me but they'll play with every other person every other little kid that's out here and that's heartbreaking to watch i've seen multiple videos about this same place in Philly, Sesame <laughs> Place, doing the same things. And it really begs the question, like, what was in place before any of this started? How do you not have the, you know, diversity and inclusion training to make sure that this never happens ever in the first place? But now going forward, I wanted the response to be more immediate. Right now, they're like, we'll investigate, we'll look into it. But an investigation and looking into it is not necessarily going to provide any justice or stop this from happening again. What I wanted to see was, hey, this was wrong. We stand against this. This shouldn't happen. The person or um, persons who are alleged in this incident have been you know, put on leave or fired or whatever. They are not dealing with children right now as we gain more information on it. By what we're doing, we're going to give the families X, Y, and Z and actually tell the families and not this, oh, we're doing it. And then the families are like, this is the first Bitch time where? about this. <laughs> Bitch where? <laughs> and also saying that now that this has, even before any investigation goes through, Immediately, we are hiring DEI consultants. We are revamping our entire diversity, equity, and inclusion program. We are providing trainings for every single employee from the head to the bottom. And we're not only doing that for our current employees, but we are implementing this into how we onboard people into this company. That should have been the immediate response, not just we're going to look at this further and like, we're going to do whatever our commitment allows us to do. No, we need immediate action because this should never happen to a child, not before and never, ever again. Absolutely. I 100% agree. I think that the reason this keeps happening is quite simple. I mean, the people in power are so used to catering towards their white audiences and employees that everyone else be damned. But exactly. we live in a different society now where things like discrimination isn't just seen as a normal part of everyday life, but something that could result in tons of bad publicity and millions of dollars in law lawyer and settlement fees. I mean, Times are changing, even though with the current legislation being passed, it feels like we're going backward, but that's a conversation for another day. Uh, we are starting to see that these companies aren't as capable as they used to be to just sweep these type of issues under the rug anymore. We're also seeing that even if they do try to bury these cases, because social media is so pervasive in society today, it doesn't just go away as easily either. Also, right. what's sad is that this isn't even the most egregious case of discrimination by a major company or brand. It's just that in this new day and age, it's easier to document it when it happens. Before, it used to be 
a lot of, you know, your word against the word of a major company with millions of dollars and tons of lawyers to intimidate you into silence. I mean, in 2022, all it takes is a press of a button and you have hard evidence of exactly how something happened. In 2022, these companies don't have the luxury of just saying that someone they discriminated against is just trying to defame them or that their accusations are baseless. Sesame's Place says that they are, for over 40 years, their company has worked to uphold the values of inclusion, respect, and belonging. But my question is, how many other BIPOC kids have been ignored by these characters that we just haven't seen video evidence of because it was more difficult to get that kind of proof back in the 80s and 90s. I mean, in 2022, right. that racist comment or action is in high definition with crystal fucking clear sound. So let's see if they start singing a better tune after this lawsuit is settled. Exactly. And I think that we also have to recognize that this is a part of our larger culture. If as a society, we are not moving towards, you know, having an equitable and just environment for everybody, then these instances and these corporations are just going to be microcosms of our larger society. So mm -hmm. that's why it's important that we stay involved in all of these issues like Black Lives Matter and all of these DEI initiatives that companies say they are and hold them accountable to make sure that they are sticking to what they said. They are sticking to their word. And as a country, we are making sure that across all different types of fields, not just Sesame Place, but in our government legislation, in education, all of these different avenues that we have this equitable and inclusive environment for everybody to feel included. It really starts at the bare minimum of just educating people, telling mm -hmm. these people what we really mean by equity and inclusion and making sure that we are not just, you know, doing a little bit here and a little bit there, but really transforming the entire landscape of our society. Absolutely. In an article written by Izzy DeBee on Pop Sugar, we learned that just when you thought Lizzo and Harry Styles' friendship couldn't get any cuter, the talented pair have proved everyone wrong. After Lizzo knocked Styles' as it was off the Billboard Hot 100 number one spot with About Damn Time, Styles responded in the most adorable way. The 28-year-old who was about to star in Don't Worry Darling alongside Florence Pugh wasn't bitter that his bestie ended his reign. Instead, he congratulated her with a beautiful bouquet of flowers. Lizzo took to TikTok to thank Harry Styles, posing with the bouquet of orange, red, and pink stems. In the video, which has racked up more than 260,000 likes in just a few hours, she says, quote, thanks for the flowers, Harry, end quote. And in the caption, the star confirmed the celebratory meaning behind the gift. She wrote, quote, y'all, Harry got me flowers congratulating me on about damn time going number one. We think that seven crying emojis that follow express how emotional Lizzo is about the kind gesture. Now, even though the pals are technically competitors in the same industry, they always seem to find a way to support one another. So Daquan, I wanted to ask you, 
is this a good representation of supporting and uplifting someone else without without having to tear yourself down in the process? Oh, absolutely. The thing I love about Harry and Lizzo's relationship, friendship, is that it's just so adorable. I think that this is a great representation of exactly what you said because, you know, they are both recording artists. They're singers, songwriters, and, you know, there is some overlaps in the things that they do in terms of genre. But I think that all of so often we think that life and success is this zero sum game. If mm -hmm. somebody has success, you can't have success. Mm -hmm. If somebody is at number one, then your song that you just put out isn't doing well. It's It can't be doing well if it's not number one. And that's not the case. You can have your time at the number one spot and then it, you know, falls down to number two and it still can have a strong showing at number two. It doesn't matter that it's number one, but what really matters is that people are connecting with the music that you put out mm -hmm. and people are listening to it and you're making music that you love. So I think that it's so important that we see something like this where people who are in the same industry aren't necessarily being, you know, bitter rivals and competing yeah. and putting each other down, especially in the music industry when everybody is trying to compete for that number one spot. And there's so much just bitterness and hatred. And we love to put, you know, different celebrities against each other and start all of this different beef and drama between people. Mm -hmm. But to see this friendship just pan out as friends, like, like we've said, so many times on this podcast, two bad bitches can coexist. They can work together. They can work separately. They can work in the same industry and they don't have to put down eat the other person to make sure that they shine. You will shine if your music is good enough. If your talent is good enough, you will shine regardless of anybody else in that room. Oh, I 100% agree, Daquan. I mean, echo it one more time. Two bad bitches can exist simultaneously. Like, period. This, this is how you support someone without belittling your own talent. I mean, I'm sure Harry Styles knows that he's got the receipts to back up the fact that he's talented. He's got the accolades. He's got the fan base and the checks coming in that let him know that he's got it going on. But he still doesn't see, he doesn't see the need to belittle or demean himself to support his friend who he recognizes is just as talented and is just as worthy of the praise. These are the types of friendships you should have in your life. Friendships where you recognize that even though you are in the same industry, even though you may be vying for similar goals, you should still celebrate your friend's successes and give them their flowers just as they would do for you. I mean, Lizzo's song surpassing Harry Styles' song on the Billboard 100 doesn't mean that his song is inferior to hers. It just means that it's her time. About damn time. Like, I really wish that people would stop pitting artists and creatives against each other. I mean, my talent and success is my talent and success. Daquan's talent and success is their talent and success. We are not better or more talented than each other. We are just simply two talented bad bitches who are both working to have our talented, our talents seen by the world around us. I mean, I think, I think a lot of people use 
numbers and money and followers to dictate who is better than who or who deserves it more. But I don't think that's how it should work. I mean, what fulfills my dreams and ambitions will not be the same as what fulfills Daquan's dreams and ambitions because we are two very different people with two very different goalposts in mind. And even if by some chance there were goals that both of us shared that one of us met before the other, it doesn't mean that the other won't get that goal one day. It just means that one of us got there first. I mean, I've always been a believer that what's meant for me is for me. Like I always say, I'm living my life with the intention of seeing my dreams realized in some form or another. I don't really care what everyone else is doing and I'm not comparing myself to anyone else's success because I'm too focused on trying to get myself to where I want to be. I mean, the only person I'm looking to compare myself to is the person I was before I got to where I am. I'm looking to make the younger me so proud that when they look at me and they say that four little words, you know, bitch, you ate that. As long as I can see my younger self saying that, then I know I'm doing the damn thing. So to see Harry Styles uplifting his friend because she's met a goal that he just met as well, it's such a fucking lovely sight to see. But Daquan, what about you? I mean, how do you think people who are in the competition with each other remain good friends despite the fact that they are pitted against one another? I think it really comes down to being able to separate business and your personal life mm -hmm. like so often we have these professional or you know achievements that we want in our careers but those professional achievements you don't have to take those home with you and so i think it's really reminding yourself and really communicating with each other whoever you're friends with hey i am here to support you I want to see you succeed because you succeeding is you succeeding. And as your friend, I'm happy to see you succeed. That's something that I should be happy about. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you know, I'm not saying that you have to just be perfect all the time. Like if you and your friend are going for a promotion and your friend gets that promotion over you, it's okay to be a little hurt. It's okay yeah. to be like, you know what? I really wanted that promotion. But you also have to remind yourself that this is just one moment in so many moments that you'll have in your life. This is one opportunity of many. And when you are being a good person, when you're being a good friend and somebody that, you know, takes things in stride, you will have more opportunities down the road. If you are somebody who, you know, really gives their flowers where they're due, take things in stride, there will be more opportunities for you and you can go for those. You might get, not get the promotion now, but maybe there's an even bigger promotion for you down the road. You just have to be open to receiving that. Yeah, I agree. I think that also what people seem to forget, especially in this industry, is like using your friend's successes as motivation. You know, you don't make friends with somebody who's not on a course to try to better themselves and to be on a trajectory of some kind. If they're not trying, if they don't see themselves in a further position, if they are not trying to be ambitious, then what do they bring into the friendship? You need to have people in your life who want to, who are at least in the same direction as you. You know, y'all are aligning in some way. And me, even though me and Daquan are in technically, I mean, I would say we're in the same industry to a degree, you know, but you're still in the makeup and I'm into other things like that. But we, we kind of have some crossover. But 
the point is like seeing your success is great. You know, it's a motivation. And I'm sure, and I think that people don't understand that, you know, when you look at other people's successes and you look at what they have accomplished, you know, I've, I've had friends that I've known, uh, one of my, one of my old friends, um, who I went to school with is actually on a Disney plus show. And it's like, oh, bitch, eat, eat, like the fuck, like go off. And it's like, you know, of course there's a little bit of moment like, damn, like, damn, it Disney plus, like, what the fuck am I doing? Like, shit, we the same age. But I think that, you know, and that's like a little moment, you can't help those little thoughts that pop up every now and then. But like, I do believe they absolutely deserve it. I believe they have worked hard and they have the talent and it's giving and it's serving. Um, and I think that it was their time and I'm and I'm happy for them. And I made sure that they knew, hey, bitch, you ate. And I'm so proud of you for being in this position. You have you absolutely deserve this. And I'm so glad you're here. And I'm hoping that one day I'm able to have and put myself in a position where I'm doing very well in my career paths and things are working out in my in, in my way and stuff like that. So I think that there is a lot of it's it's hard to let go of that like sense of pride people have where it's like, you know, I should be here or I've been working this hard. And I think that. It's like, no, you need to live your life on the sense of I'm doing better than I was yesterday. I'm working harder than I was yesterday. I'm in a different, I'm in a better position than I was in yesterday. And I think that there are so many people who forget that and think that, oh, I need to always be like, well, oh, Daquan, oh, 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 oh um, they post videos every fucking day. Well, I, need, I need to post videos every day or whatever, whatever. No, no, I need to do better than that. And it's like, no, this that's not what it is. You know, it's like, oh, Daquan's supposed to videos every day. Oh, shit. Well, let me get on my shit. Hold on. Let me get on my bag, too, bitch. Let me, let me, let's be on this shit together. Like, it should be that kind of energy. And I think that it's all about also looking at life with a growth mindset, too. I think a lot of people have that fixed mindset thing where they think, okay, if I'm not here now and somebody else is here, that means I can never get there. It's like, no, there is enough space for all of us. Right. And even if there's not that space now, you keep grinding, you keep doing what you're doing so that you can create that space. Exactly. So in an article written by Randy Richardson on Today, we learned that multi-award winning actor Bette Midler is defending a tweet many have characterized as transphobic. Monday, July 4th, the Hocus Pocus star said on Twitter that the word women is facing erasure. She tweeted, quote, we are being stripped of our rights over our bodies, our lives, and even of our names. They don't call us women anymore. They call us birthing people or menstruators or even people with vaginas. Don't let them erase you. Every human on earth owes you, end quote. Midler's tweet was met with a firestorm of responses in which many criticized her for not being gender inclusive. Alexandra Billings, a transgender actress and activist, said on Twitter that Midler in particular knows the power of language given her background in singing and songwriting. Billings tweeted, quote, language is in constant movement. As a singer, you know that words matter and as we progress, their meanings change. Your tweet is hurtful and promotes the erasure of non-binary humans. You are now becoming part of the problem. Do better listen more, end quote. Midler responded to the criticism stating, quote, if anyone who read that tweet thinks I have anything but love for any marginalized people, go to Wikipedia and type in my name. I fought for marginalized people for as long as I can remember. Still, if you want to dismiss my over 60 years of proven love and concern over a tweet that accidentally angered the very people I have always supported and adored, so be it. 
end quote. So, Andre, I want to know, what are your thoughts on Bette Bittler's initial tweet? Um, I just want to say this. Who the fuck is this mysterious being that's somehow stripping cis women of their title of being women? Like, please, give me a name. Quickly. Quickly. <laughs> like... I'm not even going to go in on Bette Midler specifically on this one. I just want to talk about this whole they're trying to erase women narrative that's been swimming around for so long in a lot of cishet circles and some LGBTQIA circles as well. Um, no one is erasing anyone. We're merely opening up the fucking doors for everyone the fuck else. Like, that's literally it. Like, in the words of Detox, I've had it officially. Like... <laughs> Adding words is not taking away the meaning of other words. It's simply an addition, not a subtraction or a replacement. All that people are saying is that in these conversations, there are people who have vaginas in a capacity for pregnancy who do not define themselves as women. If these terms do not apply to you, then don't use them to describe yourself. It's just that easy. I, I don't know what Bette Midler's intention was behind this tweet, but I will say that this tweet is very misinformed. Like she could have easily tweeted simply, we are being stripped of our rights into our bodies and that is not okay. And we will not stand for this or something to that effect to get the point across. Now, I don't agree that this tweet alone was Bette Midler becoming part of the problem, as Billing stated. I think that we need to be a little more careful when using that kind of accusation. There is a difference between people who intentionally choose to disrespect, degrade, and discriminate against the community and people who make an honest mistake. No one is perfect, and sometimes we get things wrong, even though we're trying our best to get it right. I think that we need to make sure that we make room for these types of errors. We also have to understand that we live in a society that is racist, homophobic, transphobic, xenophobic, misogynistic, and so on and so forth. And regardless of how much we educate ourselves or how woke we think we might be, we are bound to exhibit some subconscious biases that have been embedded in us from living in this society. And we have to continue our work to unlearn them when it's brought to our attention. I mean, this tweet was less of Bette Midler becoming part of the problem and more an example of a teachable moment for her. Sometimes our passion or our righteous anger can get in the way of us communicating our point clearly. I think that especially in this case, as a woman, Bette Midler's rights have been attacked as well as people with the capacity for pregnancy and she's justifiably upset. However, I think that in trying to defend herself and unite people in the fight, she unintentionally excluded people who are in the same fight and have the same anger who are not women. But Daquan, before I get into how she handled her response, I want to pass it back to you. What do you think of her initial tweet? Child. <laughs> this is something that should have stayed in the drafts. I'm or you know what? You should have just stopped it at a certain point. People are taking away our rights. Full stop. Tweet right there. It needs to change. That's <laughs> all you needed to say, but you kept on going and it 
took you down a place where you shouldn't have gone. Um, but I think that Midler falls into this same kind of trap that, you know, other, you know, people in the acting field or maybe even some writers of books have fallen into in using their kind of feminist and women's rights issues as a way of being exclusionary. Like, mm -hmm. we just have to think about the facts here. Mm -hmm. Do Are there women who give birth? Yes. Mm -hmm. Are there women who can't give birth? Yes. Mm -hmm. Are there non-binary people who can give birth? Yes. Mm -hmm. Are there trans men who can give birth? Yes. Mm -hmm. So when we just look at the facts of life, there are so many people who this issue affects that just saying women excludes so many other people. And we also can't forget that there's also so many people who are intersex and have so many different types of genital combinations or whatever down there that we can't just be like, oh, women have vaginas. There are women who do have vaginas. There are women who don't have them. Mm -hmm. There are women who have both a vagina and a penis. But mm -hmm. we can't just exclude people uh, from this entire situation. And I think that this was a prime instance of Bette Midler just, you know, not listening. Like, mm -hmm. this tweet started out well, and then it went downhill <laughs> so fast. And yeah. what was most disappointing, and what I want to get into now, is the response. Because it's one thing to have a tweet like this, people call you out, and then you'd be like, you know what? That was a bad take. You know what? I should have kept that in the drafts. Let me, you know, either take it down and be and you know issue some type of response or be like, I'm editing the tweet or I'm keeping it up to hold me accountable. What have you? Make some type of accountability post for this. What Bet Midler did was be like, I did all of these things for all of these different marginalized people in the past. So I don't know who you're coming for, but you can't be coming for me. And <laughs> That's not how it works. Being an ally or an advocate, the thing that you need to do the most is listen. So if you're not listening right now, it doesn't matter what you've done in the past. It doesn't matter how many, you know, charity galas you went to or money you raised for these organizations <laughs> or, you know, queer people you shook hands with. Mm -hmm. None of that matters if you are actively ignoring the same communities you say you are for, you say that you, you know, advocate for and adore, if you are actively harming these communities and not listening to them when you they say you are harming them, none of that matters what you did in the past because what that's telling me is you did that for some type of clout, for some type of accolade so that you can be like, Oh, go on my Wikipedia page. I have all of these different accolades and awards from these queer organizations for being such a great ally that you don't actually care about the issues to actually listen to the contemporary issues that these marginalized communities are facing. And frankly, that is disgusting. Yeah, I think as far as her response goes, I have to say that I am very disappointed in how she handled it. Um, she may not have meant it this way, 
But just like you were saying, her response to the criticism came off as defensive and condescending rather than understanding. I mean, let's look at the first part of her response where she says, quote, if anyone who read that tweet thinks I have anything but love for any marginalized people, go to my Wikipedia page and type my name. Instead of addressing the community that was hurt by what she said, she chose to use a general term. Once again, if you say something that hurts a specific community, speak to that community that you hurt directly. It wasn't marginalized people as a whole that you offended. It was the trans community and all the people that fall under that umbrella. So she should have addressed the trans community. Secondly, people need to stop using their history as an excuse for their present actions. Let's use a more extreme example to make this easier for some people to follow. If someone straight up murders someone else in cold blood, but they were a humanitarian who dedicated their lives to saving others, the judge isn't going to look at the past and say, oh, well, you saved so many people before, so I'll just excuse you for murdering this one person. No, the judge is going to look at the evidence regarding the murder and make their decision accordingly. So when people call out Bette Mendler, they aren't saying that they don't know about the good work she's done for the LGBTQIA community before. They are saying that what matters right now is her understanding what she tweeted was problematic. Now, let's talk about the second part of her statement where she said, if you want to dismiss my 60 years of proven love and concern over a tweet that accidentally angered the very people I have always supported and adored, so be it. No one is um, dismissing Mendler's advocacy for the LGBTQIA community. So let's get that out of the way first. Um, and I think that people are starting to confuse cancel culture with accountability culture because they are sometimes seen as interchangeable when they are not. Canceling someone means that people withdraw their support from a public figure and stop promoting them altogether. Accountability is holding someone responsible for something they did so that they don't do it again. Bette Mendler is being held accountable for what she said so that she can improve and expand her mind on something that she was not fully informed about. But what disappoints me the most about this response is the fact that she doesn't even realize that the fact that the LGBTQIA community is holding her accountable is a testament to the work that she's done within the community in the first place. If somebody like Candace Owens or Ben Shapiro or Matt Walsh said this, no one would bat an eye because they have always been clear that there are they are opposed to the LGBTQIA community. They wouldn't trend for their commentary because this type of rhetoric is expected from people like them. However, Bette Mendler has always vocalized her support for the community. So when the LGBTQIA community calls her out on what she said, it's not because we hate her or because we are trying to take her down. It's because we are hurt by what she said and we are trying to educate her on how to better advocate for us. It is difficult to hear that you've hurt someone that you love, especially when it was not your intention. 
But even if you don't understand why they are hurt, recognize that what you did or said has caused them pain. Marginalized communities are aware that allies aren't perfect. So when we tell you that you have made a mistake, listen with an open heart, apologize, make a commitment not to do it again, and then move forward. But Daquan, I'm interested to hear your take on this. Like, do you think that simply defending a community excludes you from being critiqued by the same community? Absolutely not. <laughs> because, you know, what this statement was really giving is gaslight gatekeep curl boss. Because <laughs> you were literally, Bette Midler was literally gaslighting people. It was like, oh, if you read it that way, that's on you. So be it. <laughs> but doing work does not negate your future. What you do in the past does not negate what you're going to do in the future. Yeah, It's something that's so, you know, simple. Like even in grade school, if we don't turn in an assignment in the past, that doesn't mean every single assignment in the future is going to be a zero. If we <laughs> don't do our homework in the past, that doesn't mean that we can't do our homework in the future. <laughs> or if we've consistently done our homework in the past and we miss a day, like, okay, <laughs> Take do your homework again. Like, what I'm failing to realize is like, just because you did your homework in the past doesn't mean that this assignment is done. That's not going to matter. No, uh-uh, Daquan. Uh-uh, say that again, bitch. Say that again right there. That's the that's the word of there right there. Just because you've done your homework in the past doesn't mean that the assignment is magically done now. It's not going to write answers on that paper. It's not going to, you know, sign your name and add a grade in the grade book. Like, I don't understand this line of reasoning other than <laughs> simply gaslighting people literally <laughs> gaslighting people being like i don't understand how somebody can read my tweet somebody that's always advocated for people as you know being transphobic i've always loved trans people i've shake shaken so many trans people's hands in the past i gave them given them pats on the back i even went to dinner with a trans person once okay and that it's doesn't matter much, to me. Daquan, you know what it's giving? It's giving very much so, oh, I'm not racist. My best friend is black. What are you talking I mean, those are both two sides of the very same coin. So back to the question, though, like, simply defending a community in the past does not exclude you of being critiqued. In fact, if you are a defender of that community, you should be open to critiques. Exactly. You should be open to how the community's issues and needs change over time. Yes. What was once a priority in, in the past is not going to necessarily be a priority in the future. And I think this is a prime instance of it. You know, in the past, in those 60 years Bette Midler is talking about, there are trans people who just wanted to be seen as people. There are exactly. trans people who just didn't want to be killed for simply existing. And now when we are getting, when we've progressed a little bit, we've, <laughs> that's a conversation for another day. But yeah. seeing that we've even progressed a bit, those needs are going to change now. If we take a step forward, you need to 
deal with the needs of that new step that we're on. And that's going to look different. That's going to be, okay, we have rights now. Let's make sure we are tightening our language to make sure we're more inclusive. We ha may have rights now, but let's make sure that we are continuing to push the envelope to make sure that these rights cannot be stripped away. And so defending a community once does not absolve you from any type of you know, problematic things you may do in the future. And I think that we've talked about this a little bit before in our Apology Plus Action episode. And go check it out. Um, but, you know, when it comes to making a mistake, you know, we, like I said before, we're not perfect people. We are, once again, I think Amanda Seal said this on uh, The Real, but she's like, you know, you can only be woke so long before you go to sleep. And it's like, and that's what it really kind of gives in life is that, you know, I consider myself an advocate for black women and the LGBTQI community because I'm a part of it, the trans community, all that stuff. And for indigenous people, BIPOC people, the whole thing. But again, you know, there are certain experiences that I don't have firsthand account on. You know what I'm saying? Like I am not a um, black woman. I have not had that experience. I am not a um, person with a vagina. You know what I'm saying? So there are there are certain experiences that I don't walk in that I have to be open to hearing criticism from. So if I fuck up and I say something or do something that is not promoting or uplifting that community and somebody in that community says, hey, bitch, don't do that. That's not helping the uh, situation that's contributed to the problem. It's like, oh, say less. I won't do that again. I am sorry. Let's move forward. I think that so many people get caught up on that idea of Oh my God, you know, I've, I've done all this work. What do they mean I'm wrong? What do they mean I've done something bad? Girl, you are going to fuck up. It's okay. We are human. We're going to fuck up. But it's about how you respond to that fuck up that shows the kind of person you are. I couldn't have said it better myself. Now, the table is always hot with current events and social issues, but sometimes the heat can get a little intense. <laughs> Let's turn the temp down, take a breather, and get into this week's topic, cool down. So, Andre, I wanted to ask you, do you believe that human beings are inherently selfish? Yes, I do. Um, but I don't think that that's a bad thing. Um, I think that, you know, in life, um, you have to be a certain level of selfish. Now, no one's saying that you have to be, you know, egotistic. You know, there's a there's a level of egoism that's a little bit different. That's, a you know, psycho psychopathy and, you know, sociopathy kind of stuff. But, you know, there is a degree of selfishness you have to have in life. You know, we've talked about this before, but like, you know, having to let some people go to protect your peace and having to say, you know, I'm not going to engage in this conversation or I'm not going to engage in this kind of rhetoric or this kind of uh, uh, friendship or relationship because it's no longer benefiting me. And even though it may sound like, oh, girl, like you think you're better. It's like, no, I don't think I'm better. I think that this person is not benefiting my life, so I'm not going to let them stay in my life. So there is a degree of selfishness we have to have as human beings to survive in this world. I mean, we know that life is not fair. We know that um, certain things and certain people try to take advantage of us and try to take advantage of our kindness. So I think that, especially if you are one of those people who oftentimes put other people's needs before your own, you need to start being a little more selfish to protect yourself. Because if you're giving everything to everyone, you know, um, then you have nothing left. You know, I think there's a story, I'm not religious whatsoever, but there's a story I heard about in the Bible where it's like, you know, you don't give 
everything that you've got. If you have excess, then you give. And I think that that's kind of the, the way you have to look at life is that if you, no one's saying that, oh, okay, you know, um, if you're a cousin or aunt or sister or whatever, it's like, oh, girl, I can't pay my rent. And you're like, well, girl, here's my rent money and pay your rent. It's like, okay, bitch, you still need a house to live in. You still need to pay your own rent. You know what I'm saying? And the same thing goes in life. But if I, if I have my rent and then some, it's like, well, girl, here you go. I got some extra here. I can still pay my bills. I can still take care of myself and my home and my health and things of that nature. But I'm also able to share my excess with somebody who may be in need. But what about you, Daquan? I completely agree. I think that humans are inherently selfish. Like, let's <laughs> even think about as a child. When you are a baby just fresh into this world, you're focused on your needs before anybody else's. Yeah. In fact, you don't necessarily have the same capacity to care about other people's needs as you do your own needs. Yeah. If you're hungry, you're going to cry. You're going to do whatever it takes for somebody to feed you. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter if your mom was just up for 24 hours and just wanted <laughs> five minutes of sleep. If you're hungry, you're not going to give her that five minutes of sleep. And that's something that is just natural for babies because they can't take care of themselves. Mm -hmm. So they need somebody else to deal with their needs i even think like as we think of the psychology and like maslow's hierarchy of needs if you don't have those basic needs met like that's the only thing you're going to care about and like you said it's not necessarily something that has to be negative but when it gets paired with somebody who is egotistical and narcissistic mm -hmm. then it's going to be something that's completely uh that's completely negative. And I think we also need to think about selflessness as like this learned trait. You know, you are inherently selfish. You care about yeah. your needs as a baby and you want your needs met. But as a child, you have to learn, oh, there are other people who have other needs. This is what somebody looks like when they're sad and you learn to, you know, deal with other people's emotions and their concerns and everything like that. And like you said, like, I am somebody that will give a lot. Like I will do a lot of things. I will carry a lot of hats and everything like that. But I've had to learn how to be like, okay, I want to give my all to this class and these seven extracurriculars and this exec board, <laughs> all of that. But I need to focus on me right now because if I'm not here, then I can't be here to do all of these different things. So I need to make sure I'm good first if I care about all of these different things that I want to be a part of, I can't pay somebody else's rent if my rent isn't paid. I can't pay for, you know, a church to get its roof built if my roof needs a whole, <laughs> needs a whole fixed. And so I think that we have to be able to ebb and flow between giving selflessly and also being selfish enough to care about our own interests. Yeah, I think that even when we look at psychology, you know, um, we learn about the id, the ego, and the superego, whereas like the id is like, I want to do that now. And the superego is like, well, it's not right to do that. And the ego is like, well, maybe we can compromise. And I think that's kind of how you should navigate life. It's like, 
you know, I want to afford to go to work or I want I want to I want to afford my rent. And it's like, well, I could just I could just steal from the store. I could just steal, you know, go to go to the bank and just take the money, just whatever. And then the super ego is like, hold on, bitch, that's not you going to jail. There's prison system, the shit like that. And it's like a checking a consciousness like, hold on, bitch, that's not the right move. And the ego is like, OK, well, we can't steal from the bank, but we need this money. So what is the, the what is the compromise? Get a job, go to work or X, Y and Z. You know what I'm saying? And that's kind of a little basic example. But like, I think that's how we kind of grow up in life is that, you know, as a kid, like you were just saying, we grow up with that id. I want to eat. I need to use the bathroom. I need to X, Y and Z. I need, I need, I need, I need, I need. And then we start to develop a super ego that says from your parents and from your upbringing and from life, you start to learn. Okay, well, you can't just hit this person because you're mad or you can't just, you know, take this uh, food from this person because you're hungry. You know, you have to do other things about that. And that ego is that kind of medium place. You know, it's not selflessness and it's not selfish. It's in that nice little middle ground that says, hey, I want these things. How can I get these things in a way that's not going to hurt other people? Right. We also have to remember that being selfish is subjective. Ooh. everybody's not going to mm -hmm. understand your needs and your capacity. They may be like, oh, you can definitely handle more than this. Like, you're just being selfish and not wanting to do more work. And it's like, no, I have things going on that you're not privy to that's <laughs> yeah. causing me not to be able to give X, Y, and Z or give of my time, my money, my treasure, yeah. any of that stuff that you're not privy to. So being selfish is completely subjective and everybody's not going to be privy to all of the factors in your life that may cause you to step back a little bit that may cause you to be a little bit more frugal with your money or your time yeah. or anything like that absolutely now so many children grow up never knowing the full scope of what their culture has contributed to society and history so it's time for a change. Let's take a pause, rewind, and remind the world just how we did that. In an article written on biography.com, we learn about Frederick McKinley Jones, born in Cincinnati, Ohio on May 17, 1893, to a white father and a black mother. Despite his challenging childhood, Jones had a talent for and an interest in mechanics. He read extensively on the subject in addition to his daily work, educating himself in his spare time. By the time he was 20, Jones was able to secure an engineering license in Minnesota. He served in the U.S. Army during World War I, where he was often called upon to make repairs to machines and other equipment. After the war, he returned home to the farm. It was on the Halleck farm that Jones educated himself further in electronics. When the town decided to fund a new radio station, Jones built the transmitter needed to broadcast its programming. He also developed a device to combine moving pictures with sound. Local businessman Joseph A. Numero subsequently hired Jones to improve the sound equipment he produced for the film industry. Jones continued to expand his interests in the 1930s. He designed and patented a portable air cooling unit for trucks carrying perishable food. Forming a partnership with Numero, Jones founded the U.S. Thermo Control Company. The company grew exponentially during World War II, helping to preserve food, medicine, and blood. 
1949, Thermo Control was worth millions of dollars. Over the course of his career, Jones received more than 60 patents. While the majority pertained to refrigeration technologies, others related to X-ray machines, engines, and sound equipment. Jones was recognized for his achievements both during his lifetime and after his death. In 1944, he became the first African-American elected to the American Society of Refrigeration Engineers. Jones died of lung cancer in Minneapolis, Minnesota on February 21st, 1961. Black people. Every time I hear self-educated, that shit blows my mind. Like, he, he said, bitch, who gonna check me, boo? Oh, I can't do Listen. that. Watch me. <laughs> I went to school for over 16 years. Like, self-educated? You did all of that yourself? Can't be me. <laughs> <laughs> it's giving bad bitch energy. <laughs> exactly. And I also have to think, especially now, like, think about how important those early, you know, trucks with mm -hmm. refrigeration in them was, you know, not only back then, but now as we talk about vaccines being transported and everything like that, like, yep. let's thank some Black people. <laughs> now, my We Did That comes from BlackPass.org. Composer, performer, music critic, essayist, Advocate and teacher Harry Lawrence Freeman was born in Cleveland, Ohio in 1869. Initially self-taught, Freeman's musical abilities were apparent at a young age. At 12, he started and performed in a boys' vocal quartet. He also worked as a church organist. At 18, he was composing music. In 1891, when he was 22 years old, Freeman had migrated west and organized the Freeman Grand Opera Company of Denver, Colorado. The company would perform his first operatic works, Athalia and the Martyr, at Denver's Duchess Theater in 1891 and 1893, respectively. Freeman held a variety of positions during his lifetime that enabled him to promote the cause of African-American musical performance and production. From 1902 to 1904, he directed the music program at Wilberforce University. In 1906, both Harry and his wife Carlotta worked at the newly formed Perkin Peckin Theater in Chicago, the first theater of its kind to be entirely run and performed by African Americans. In 1908, Freeman moved his family to New York City and the following year, he became the musical director for the Cole Johnson Brothers Company and then musical director of the John Larkins Musical Comedy Company. In 1912, he founded and conducted the 75-member Negro Choral Society. And in 1920, the Freemans founded both the Negro Grand Opera Company and the Salem School of Music in Harlem, later renamed the Freeman School of Music. Freeman performed at Carnegie Hall twice during his lifetime, once in 1930 and again in 1947. He also composed and directed a musical event at the 1934 Chicago World's Fair that showcased the African-American experience. In 1930, he received the Harmon Award for Significant Achievement by an African-American in the field of arts and letters. Woo! 
Another self-talk. Another self-talk. Another and composing music at 18. At 18. The talent. But the talent, like I just every time, like it's so crazy how much they did not want us to succeed, how much they wanted to push us down, how much they wanted to keep us from expressing our creativities and our um intelligence. And we said, Oh, bitch, we we will find a way. Right. <laughs> we will be the black firsts. Exactly. It is so oh, I just love hearing that. I just love fucking hearing that. Like, oh, it's getting bad, bitch. It's getting bad, bitch. Like. Now, as always, thank you all so much for watching and keep the conversation going down in the comment box below. Don't forget to give this video a thumbs up. And if you are listening to us on our podcast, please rate and review on whatever platform you're using. You can also follow our podcast on Instagram and TikTok at The Melanin Margin for updates of new content. And if you'd like to follow each of us, our handles are at Daquan M-U-E and at Andre Talks A Lot. Now we will see you all next time on the Melanin Margin, where our goal is always to bring the marginalized to the spotlight in any way we can. Goodbye now.